Hi everyone and welcome back to Ancient Weirdness with Gunnar Hauser. Today's episode is going to be devoted to laws, trials, legal procedures, all of a very strange nature. Now we have law codes that go all the way back in the Western world to the Bronze Age, to the Sumerians of Mesopotamia or what is now Iraq. The longest, most complete law code is attributed to a king named Hammurabi, ruler of Babylon. He lived early in the 1700s BC. And his law code survives in a complete form on a large stone monument that was taken all the way to what is now Iran by an enemy tribe called the Elamites. It was found in the early 1900s, and the original is in the Louvre Museum in Paris, France today. Now, there's just under 300 laws written in cuneiform on the front of the stone pillar, and a few of them are very, very strange. Accusations of wrongdoing, when they couldn't be proven one way or the other, they would have recourse to some kind of divine sign. And throwing an individual into water, particularly river water, if the accused person thrown into the river did not sink, that meant that they were innocent. If they did sink, they were guilty, A, and B, they died, most likely. But there's a very particular law that states that if you bring an accusation against someone and the river shows that they're innocent— that person is going to get your house. If the accused person drowns, then the accuser gets that person's house. There's also liability where if a doctor performs surgery on a patient and the patient dies during the operation, his hands will be cut off. There's also a surprising number of laws that focus on bartenders or tavern keepers who seem to be predominantly female the way they are referred to. Now, there's one law that is misconstrued by a lot of people, and you can find many statements on the internet when you look at things like the history of beer, because beer was brewed from a very early date in Mesopotamia. You often see people say that bartenders would be executed for watering down beer. It sort of says that, but if you read it carefully, it's a little bit different. It really just relates to overcharging. The law in question states that if a bartender or tavern keeper won't take grain in payment for beer, takes money instead, which would really be just weighted lumps of metal, they didn't have coins at this time, and the value of the beer served was less than the money that was handed over, then the tavern keeper or bartender would be executed by drowning. So it is related to overcharging for the beer, but people will put it into this modern idea of watering down a drink in a literal sense, which does not seem to be the case. It seems that bars were just as seedy back then as they can be now. There's a law that states that a tavern keeper will be put to death if she or he does not arrest conspirators who gather in the establishment. And there's also a very harsh law about priestesses, if one of them would open a tavern, apparently on the sly, or even just walks into one and has a drink, that she will be executed by burning. And just a century or so later, we have a set of laws from a group called the Hittites, the Hittites lived in the central part of what is now Turkey. Actually, a Hittite army eventually destroyed Babylon, although it was rebuilt later. But this law code that comes from roughly 1600 BC is also written in cuneiform, but in the Hittite language, very different language from Babylonian. But it shows that there were certain gray areas when it came to bestiality. The law states that if a man were to have sex with cattle, sheep, or pigs, he would be executed. But he would not be punished if he had sex with a horse or a mule. All it states is such a person cannot approach the king or become a priest afterwards. 
It also talks about things happening in the other direction. If an ox were to mount a man, as it stated, the ox would be killed. But if a pig tries to do it, the pig is not going to be punished, much less the person. A legal scenario that gives the old expression to bring home the bacon a whole new meaning. When we get to ancient Athens, it gets very interesting because we have references, records of court cases, and even courtroom speeches. There's a number of cases that relate to prostitution done by both men and women. Now, prostitution itself was legal in ancient Athens. There was a tax that was placed on it called, guess what, the pornicon, because common prostitutes were called porni. There was a politician named Aeschines, and Aeschines had been accused of committing treason, conspiring with Philip II of Macedonia, the father of Alexander the Great. And the accusation of treason was brought against Aeschines by one of his main political rivals named Demosthenes, but Demosthenes did it in conjunction with another man named Timarchus. And so Aeschines shot back by filing a kind of counter-lawsuit, stating that Timarchus had no right to bring the case to court against Aeschines because he had been a gigolo, a male prostitute. The ancient Greek word for that was kenidos. And the whole thing isn't just sort of a strictly moralistic idea, or even what might be thought of as a homophobic idea. It was more the idea that if a man were to submit to certain acts, he lost his citizenship rights. He could then be hit with what was called atemia, literally means loss of honor. But it meant that you couldn't exercise citizenship rights, including prosecuting people in court. This case went to trial around the year 345 B.C., and we have Aeschines' speech called against Timarchus. And he says some very sordid things about Timarchus. He claims that Timarchus sort of found his calling with this profession while still a very young man, that he lived with a succession of men, including a doctor in the Piraeus Harbor, pretending to be his student. Then he later moved in with a public slave. Believe it or not, there were slaves in Athens that were owned by the city-state, not by private individuals. And this would have made him Timarchus's most scandalous choice of client, because to actually be the passive partner was to put yourself on the same level as a slave. So the slave Patalikos, pretty lowbrow character himself, he ran a gambling den. There was also cockfighting. Yes, they had cockfighting in ancient Greece. It was a very popular sport. But then Timarchus ran off with a very wealthy man called Hegesandros. Patalikos started to follow them, chase them down, show up unannounced and uninvited to parties. So Hegesandros and Timarchus broke into his house, smashed his gaming board, scattered his dice, killed all of the fighting cocks, and tied him to a post and whipped him severely. Patalikos tried to prosecute them for this. And Hegesandros tried to stop that lawsuit by claiming that Patalikos was in fact his slave who had run off. Well, whether or not anything that Aeschines was claiming about Timarchus in this speech was actually true, he in fact won the case, and Timarchus was hit with Atamia. Now turning to the female side, there's also the interesting story of a woman named Phrini. Phrini was a courtesan. The term for this in Greek was hetaira, or companion. These were sort of high-class escorts. And Phrynne's beauty was renowned. One of her boyfriends was a famous sculptor named Praxiteles, who used her as his model for a nude statue of the goddess Aphrodite. Phrynne was put on trial for committing some kind of religious transgression, a profaning of the Eleusinian mysteries. 
She went on trial before a body of old men called the Areopagus, which probably sounds to you like the name of a really cool dinosaur. This was the oldest court in Athens, and it had jurisdiction over such matters. She was about to be found guilty when the man who was defending her in court, a famous orator named Hipparades, had a sudden flash of inspiration, decided on an interesting legal strategy where he simply pulled the robe off of her and displayed her nude body to all these old guys on the Areopagus, and they were so struck by her beauty, comparing her to an apparition of the goddess Aphrodite herself, this little bit of visual Viagra got her acquitted. Now, generally, women were not allowed to give evidence in a courtroom or speak on their own behalf. The testimony of slaves was generally not considered to be admissible either, although we do have references to slaves sometimes being tortured as part of a trial. This was something that the Greeks called basanos, that if somebody is accused of something, they could say, oh, well, I don't have an alibi, but torture my slaves, go ahead, and they will support my testimony that I was nowhere near the scene of the crime. So there would be some kind of a challenge that would be made. Some historians today think that it was a kind of rhetorical strategy that you could use in front of a jury. You could say, oh, you can torture my slaves if you want, if you don't believe me. And it might not have been carried out all that often. Probably the strangest example of a law court in ancient Athens was called the Prytaneion. And this one would actually put on trial inanimate objects like sticks or stones or pieces of iron that might have fallen off of a roof or a wall and killed someone or have been thrown by an unknown assailant and they couldn't find the perpetrator, but they found the object used as a murder weapon. And in some cases, animals too, that had killed people. And if found guilty, they would be taken outside the city limits. And we don't have any surviving court speeches from any of these weird trials, although trials of animals for murder are known from medieval and Renaissance Europe. Now, capital punishment in Athens took one of two forms. You have probably heard of Socrates being forced to drink a poison called hemlock, conium maculatum. This is a plant that would be ground up in a mortar and pestle, mixed with various things, probably wine. It's portrayed by Plato in his account of the death of Socrates as Socrates going to sleep peacefully. And that's not really the case. We know from modern cases of hemlock poisoning that it can cause vomiting and seizure and convulsions. What really leads to death is respiratory failure. The toxin in the hemlock paralyzes the muscles of the chest, the diaphragm, and this is what really kills the victim. Hemlock was kind of expensive, though. A lethal dose cost the equivalent of a week's pay for a skilled laborer. If you couldn't afford that, well, they had something called apotympanismos. And that $50 word refers to tying somebody to some kind of a board or a plank or makeshift wooden structure. Some accounts are that the person would then be beaten with clubs or cudgels or maybe just left out to be exposed to the sun, the elements, animals, and the ridicule of passersby. The Athenians do also seem to have thrown a number of people into some kind of a pit called the Barathron. The Barathron is included in a famous story told by Herodotus about the Persian Wars. When the Persian king Darius sent heralds to Athens before the First Persian War, demanding that they turn over earth and water from Athenian territory, a traditional sign of submission to the king of Persia, the Athenians threw some of the heralds into the Barathron and some of them into a well and said, there's your earth and water right there. 
Now, Roman law has similarities with Greek law, although their civil law codes were far more complex, and they had the actual profession of attorneys or lawyers. We have many collections of Roman law codes, and one very interesting one relates to divorce. Now, divorce seems to have been relatively easy to initiate. Constantine is credited by historians as being the first ever Christian to rule as emperor of Rome. And Judeo-Christian tradition was much more restrictive of the whole idea of divorce. It's unclear, though, whether Christianity had a direct influence on these new laws on divorce, because they were very strange. A wife could only initiate divorce proceedings if she could prove that her husband was guilty of murder, sorcery, or desecrating tombs. Oh, that's a red flag, all right. You have to wonder, is that just worst-case scenario, or was that an actual problem? Now, as far as sorcery is concerned, the Latin term was maleficium, which meant literally evil doing. It could include things like attempting to poison people. Now, if the wife could not prove those crimes after she had brought an accusation, she lost her dowry, the money and property that she had brought into the marriage from her family, and she was sent to an island. This was called relegation. They had a number of very barren islands that would have been extremely bleak places to spend the rest of your life. A husband could only get a divorce if he could prove that his wife was guilty of adultery, pimping, yet another red flag, or sorcery. If he was unable to prove his accusations, the husband had to return the dowry that his wife had brought into the marriage to her and her family, a little less severe of a punishment. Connected to the idea that we started with when I was talking about the trial by water in the Code of Hammurabi is the concept of an accused person undergoing something called an ordeal in order to prove their innocence. And we see this near the end of antiquity between the ancient world and the medieval period in Western civilization. We see references in a law code from a tribe called the Franks. This was one of several so-called barbarian tribes that migrated into Roman imperial territory and eventually helped bring down the western half of the Roman Empire. So this law code in question, the Salic law code, is from the 500s AD. Now an ordeal by fire was where the accused person would have to undergo the ordeal of either walking a certain number of paces holding onto a red-hot piece of iron, or they might be forced to walk over a path strewn with red-hot iron objects. There's a case from the Middle Ages of a man named Peter Bartholomew. He was a charismatic holy man who accompanied the army of the First Crusade, which successfully captured Jerusalem in 1099. And while on their way towards that destination, the Crusaders took the town of Antioch, called today Antakya in Turkey. But they were besieged inside the town they had just captured by Muslim forces. Peter Bartholomew stated that he'd had a dream, and in this dream, St. Andrew had appeared, had led him into the church of St. Peter of Antioch, which still stands today, had pointed to a spot on the floor, and had told him to dig there. He got his fellow crusaders to help him. They lifted the flagstones of the floor of St. Peter's, dug into the ground, and lo and behold, they found a religious relic, the Holy Lance. Supposedly the lance that the Roman soldier in the gospel story had used to pierce the side of Jesus as he hung on the cross. The crusaders managed to escape from the trap in Antioch, almost miraculously. As they made their way south, Peter Bartholomew insisted that the holy lance was bringing them luck. But this guy had his enemies in the crusading force too, and they began to denounce him. They said, oh, this is something fake that you found. 
So he said, well, to prove that I am telling the truth and God is on my side, I will do an ordeal by fire. In this case, they built a massive bonfire with a very narrow path stuck to the middle. And Peter Bartholomew walked through the bonfire. Well, guess what happened? He was severely burned and died soon afterwards. Whether or not the Holy Lance had been genuine didn't seem to matter because the First Crusade was successful in capturing Jerusalem and the Holy Land. Today, there's several Holy Lances in various museums around the world. However, the one found by the Crusaders in Antioch disappeared long ago. There was also an ordeal by water. Little different, though, than what I described from ancient Babylon. This involved boiling water. There would be a cauldron of water that would be brought to a boil, and an object would be hung from a string or rope into the boiling water, and the accused person would have to reach into the boiling water and retrieve it. Then their hand and arm would be bandaged, and after several days, usually three or four days, the bandages would be removed. And if the hand and arm were healing, if they were uncooked, as the law stated, then the person was declared to be innocent. If, however, the hand and arm were not doing well, if they were oozing blood or pus, or if they were swollen, they were found guilty. And also there was a good chance they were going to die from this injury with the state of medical knowledge at the time. Interestingly enough, it was possible to get a substitute to undergo this ordeal by water. We have one very interesting case of an ordeal by water that was done by the wife of an early medieval king. If you've heard of Charles the Great or Charlemagne, Charlemagne was able to control a large area of Central and Western Europe and was even crowned as a Roman emperor by a pope named Leo, the first ruler in Western Europe to be called that in many centuries since the end of the unified Roman Empire. And there had been a three-way split, the three grandsons of Charlemagne, Charles the Bald, Louis the German, and Lothar had all received a section of Charlemagne's empire. This was the compromise that ended civil war between them. Lothar had received what was called the Middle Kingdom, comprised of what is today the Netherlands, Belgium and Luxembourg, the eastern portion of modern France, and northern Italy. Now Lothar died, and his son Lothar II took over. Lothar II married a woman named Teutberga, and it was a purely political arrangement. He already had a mistress named Waldrada at the time of the marriage and seems to have kept her around. Well, Teutberger proved barren in the long run, and Lothar II could not have a child with her. Well, to any king, having a child, particularly a son, was vitally important. So Lothar II wanted his marriage with Teutberger annulled. Getting an annulment was the only way that you could get a divorce at this time in European history. However, his request to Pope Nicholas I for this annulment was refused. Lothar II called a meeting of bishops of his kingdom and lodged a very scurrilous accusation against his wife Teutberga. This happened in the year 857 AD. He accused his wife of having had incestuous relations with her brother Hookbert and that she had been impregnated by her brother. However, the intercourse and pregnancy had occurred anally. Stay with me here. And that she had aborted this baby that had resulted from anal sex. Now, whether they were just afraid of King Lothar II or what, this group of bishops did order that Teutberga undergo the ordeal of boiling water to prove that she was innocent of this ridiculous charge. Turns out she passed, and he was compelled to take her back as his lawful wife. However, a few years later, he tried to get an annulment again. When the Pope wouldn't do it, he got his local bishops to give him the annulment, and Lothar II went ahead and married his mistress, Waldrada. 
Teutberga fled the palace, made her way down to Rome, and met with Pope Nicholas I. And the Pope announced that the marriage of Lothar II and Waldrada was null and void. He even defrocked the bishops who had agreed to it. He said that conducting that marriage ceremony was the equivalent of running a bordello, a rather colorful metaphor. Believe it or not, this led to military action. Lothar II took an army down into Italy, and he besieged Pope Nicholas I in St. Peter's in Rome. Nicholas I was blockaded in there for several days without any food. Well, negotiations began. The deposed bishops were restored to their positions, but Nicholas never took back his nullification of that second marriage. Then, Pope Nicholas I died. The next pope was Adrian II. After Pope Nicholas I had fought so hard to defend Teutberg's honor, she asked for an annulment. And for whatever reason, the new sheriff in Rome, Pope Adrian II, finally agreed to annul the marriage of Lothar II and Teutberga. However, soon after that, Lothar became very ill with a fever and died. This was in the year 869. Lothar had had children with Waldrada, but they were now illegitimate. And that meant that there were no heirs from his family to take the throne. So Charles the Bald and Louis the German, the other two grandsons of Charlemagne, who were neighboring the Middle Kingdom on each side, simply carved up the kingdom between themselves, created the basis of what later become Germany and France, and thus the future map of Europe was affected by this situation. It actually changed the course of European history. Teutberga, for her part, after the marriage was finally annulled, took religious vows, became a nun, and died in 875. Thanks, everyone, for joining me for another episode. We'll see you back for the next installment of Ancient Weirdness with Gunnar Hauser.